and children are dismissed to children's church. We had a weird flow of events this morning, I'm sorry. I was wondering why Ashley was still looking at me, and I wasn't sure what had gone on. I believe I had a misunderstanding about something else, so... So if you're in the book of Matthew, uh, this, just hold it there. Uh, and this week while I was thinking about our first uh, morning together of Advent, I was also writing a paper for my Christian history class that I will admit I had procrastinated to beyond the last minute. And um, there were very few instructions for that paper. Uh, it simply had to be a biographical essay about uh, an important an important figure in Christian history between the time of Christ and the Reformation, which was around the 1500s. So I had to pick one person and, and write about their life and their contributions to Christianity, their writings. Um, and for my biographical essay, I chose to write about a man that now goes by the name, or now we know him as Justin Martyr. Justin Martyr. For a few of you that may sound familiar, you may even know a little bit about Justin Martyr, but I wouldn't be surprised if, if most uh, most people have never really heard that name, not because he wasn't significant, because he was, but because his significance um, really lies more within Christian history than history in general. Um, his original name was actually only Justin. He was went by Justin. Uh, but because of his impact on the early church and then because of his martyrdom, he eventually went by the name of Justin the Martyr, and then that became shortened to Justin Martyr. Um, and, you know, some of his greatest significance, some of his best works were writing a defense of Christianity to the pagan rulers and to the pagan philosophers and even to the emperor of Rome. Uh, he wrote these defenses, but I don't want us to focus on that so much. Uh, I want us to think about his, um, his coming into Christianity, the way that he became a Christian. Um, because he grew up, he didn't grow up in a Christian home as many of the early church fathers did. He didn't uh, have a Christian education. In fact, he had the opposite. He, had, uh, he grew up in a pagan home. He grew up with a good Greek education. Um, but the furthest thing from Christianity. But even despite that, he, he wanted to know about God. And not just the gods in general, as, as a lot of Greeks might have wanted to know about. He wanted to know about the God. And of course, not necessarily the God that we think of, but he wanted to know, who is this divine being? Who is this ultimate being? It wasn't a question for him whether or not God existed it was a question as to, how do I know this God? How do I know about this one true being, this one divine God? And the way that he came to know, or the way that he got knowledge in, in any way was through philosophy. That's the way the early uh, Greeks and the early Romans thought about things was through philosophy. Especially about things that you couldn't you know, prove scientifically. And so... To know about God or to know about the universe, people turn to different philosophical schools. And so that's what Justin did. He wanted to know about God, and so he turned to all these various uh, schools of thought. He tried to find a mentor who could teach him about God. He started out uh, st studying under someone who was considered a Stoic. And, and that person, who he thought would have been a good mentor, actually didn't even want to teach him about God. He said that knowledge isn't even necessary. So then he, he left that Mentor went to another mentor uh, who was a uh, peripatetic, but that person 
uh, only wanted his money. The third mentor he went to actually rejected him because he didn't have enough knowledge about other things. He didn't know enough about science and, and math. And he said, if you don't know those things, then how could you ever know about God? And then finally, he came to a, or finally as he thought anyways, he came to the, uh, a man who was considered a Platonist. Now, without getting into any of that, uh, he actually enjoyed Platonism. He enjoyed this Platonic philosophy where he thought he was learning all this knowledge about God. And he, he even advanced in this and became really smart in this way. He was uh, learning about the universe and what he thought was about this one true God. And he was proud of himself. Uh, but all this began to change when he had a conversation with a Christian man uh, on a beach one day. This man stopped him and began asking him questions and began quizzing him about his beliefs. And without getting into all the details of the questions, it just shook his beliefs to the core. It shook everything that he thought he knew about God. And because of that conversation, he would eventually uh, become a very devout Christian, a very great apologist or, or, or defender of the faith. Um, and all that to say that even though Justin thought he had all this great knowledge about the universe, and he even knew a great deal about God, uh, there's a lot of things that, that we would agree with, uh, with, with with this Platonic philosophy, that, that there's one God, that he created the, the universe, those kind of things we would agree with. And so he knew a lot about God, but he didn't really know God. He knew these truths about God, some vague truths about God, but he didn't know God because he didn't know Jesus. And he would come to know Jesus, and he would eventually uh, would know him to be the Son of God who came, uh, become a man without sin, who died on the cross for our sins. And Justin uh, would eventually have the right understanding about Jesus. He would have a true belief about Jesus and believe true things about Jesus. But before that, even with all this knowledge about God, he was lost. So oftentimes, and as we sang this morning, during this time of year especially, we hear uh, the phrase, what child is this? We sing that song, what child is this? What child is this? How we answer that question has incredible impact on the way, on the direction of our life and the outcome of our life. What child is this? Justin Martyr eventually had to ask himself that same question. Who is this Jesus? What is this? Who is this person? What, is, what has he done? Who is he? And his understanding that Jesus was the perfect Son of God who died in his place for his sins was the thing that he needed to know to truly know the God that he had been searching for for so long. So today, as we consider the birth narrative in Matthew, we're going to read the, the story of Jesus' birth here in Matthew. I want us to ask that question again. What child is this? And by that, I mean that I want us to explore the identity of Jesus, the identity of Jesus. I want to ask, who is he? Who is Jesus? What, who is this child? Um, or just to ask, who is this Jesus? So let's actually read now in God's Word. In Matthew chapter 1, verses 18 through 25. And as we read, listen for some of those titles or names of Jesus that we hear in, in Matthew's account of the birth. Because those, those names will kind of clue us in on some of the identities or the key components of Jesus' identity. So Matthew chapter 1, verses 18 through 25. Now the birth of Jesus Christ took place in this way. When his mother Mary had been betrothed to Joseph, before they came together, she was found to be with child from the Holy Spirit. And her husband Joseph, being a just man and unwilling to put her to shame, resolved to divorce her quietly. 
But as he considered these things, behold, an angel of the Lord appeared to him in a dream, saying, Joseph, son of David, do not fear to take Mary as your wife, for that which is conceived in her is from the Holy Spirit. She will bear a son, and you shall call his name Jesus, for he will save his people from their sins. All this took place to fulfill what the Lord had spoken by the prophet. Behold, the virgin shall conceive and bear a son, and they shall call his name Emmanuel, which means God with us. When Joseph woke from sleep, he did as the angel of the Lord commanded him. He took his wife, but knew her not until she had given birth to a son, and he called his name Jesus. Amen. Let's pray together. Dear God, I thank you for this time that we have to to open your word, uh, especially to these passages that are so near to us, dear God, that are so dear to our hearts that we especially think about this time of year, dear God. I ask that you would uh, open our eyes to, to see your word, dear God, that you would show us who this Jesus is, dear God, who your word tells us he is, uh, and why we should know those things, dear God. I pray that you would just bless this time. And I want to pray in your gracious and holy name. Amen. So I want us to explore the identity of Jesus. And as we Uh, See here in Matthew, the first point that I want us to consider about Jesus is that He is the fulfillment of God's Word. Jesus is the fulfillment of God's Word. Uh, In some places in this passage, that is more obvious than others, but there there are some places where it is subtle. For example, one of the more obvious examples is verse 22, where the, the narrator, or Matthew, says, All this took place to fulfill what the Lord had spoken by the prophet. So, Matthew and his God-inspired narration of this story reminds the reader, he's reminding us here today that what's going on here in this passage isn't just a good story. It's not just this cool thing that's happening. It is, in fact, the fulfillment of the Word of God. The fulfillment of the Word of God. Another area in this passage where we see this fulfillment idea, and it's a little more subtle example, is when the angel addresses Joseph. It's in verse 20. He addresses Joseph. He doesn't just call him by his name. He doesn't just say Joseph. He says, Joseph, son of who? He says, son of David. Son of David. And now, for the sake of time this morning, we didn't read all of chapter 1, but if you notice, notice above where we started reading, verses 1 through 17, all of that is a genealogy of Jesus Christ. That is Several, several names, uh, fathers and sons, uh, and people who were in the line of Jesus, all the way from Abraham to David and then to Jesus. You notice in verse 17, those three names in particular are important. Look at verse 17. So all the generations from Abraham to David were 14 generations, and from David to the deportation to Babylon, 14 generations, and from the deportation to Babylon to the Christ, 14 generations. So we see there's this significance on these three people. And before Christ, we see the significance lies on Abraham and David. Abraham and David. Why, why them two? Why, why, why point us back to them? I think that by pointing us back to those two uh, people, by pointing us back to Abraham and David, God is reminding us of the promises that he made to them, the, the promises that eventually point to Christ. For, for Abraham, God promised him in Genesis 12 
He says, Go from your country and your kindred and your father's house to the land that I will show you, and I will make of you a great nation, and I will bless you and make your name great, so that you will be a blessing. I will bless those who bless you, and him who dishonors you I will curse. And here's, listen to this part here. And in you all the families of the earth shall be blessed. So here this promise to Abraham that all the families would be blessed through a descendant of Abraham, essentially. And knowing that promise, and then seeing this genealogy, we can make the connection that Matthew's trying to help us make here, that Jesus is that one. Jesus is the reason that God could say to Abraham, through you all the families of the earth shall be blessed. Through you there will be this opportunity for people to come to Christ who could never have come before. Also we see in David that this promise is renewed and it's even expanded. For David, God says, this is in 2 Samuel 7, he makes a covenant with him. He says, when your days are fulfilled and you lie down with your fathers, I will raise up your offspring after you who shall come from your body and I will establish his kingdom. He shall build a house for my name and I will establish the throne of his kingdom forever. So again, seeing this genealogy and knowing what we know about David, who else could be that, that son? Who else could be that descendant whose throne would be established forever other than Jesus himself? So by reminding us of the genealogy of Jesus and tracing us back to these promises of Abraham and David, God is showing us that He is the Messiah from the Old Testament. He is the one to come. He's helping us make these connections. So Jesus is the fulfillment of God's Word. I say that without a doubt, looking here at Matthew, that Jesus is the fulfillment of God's Word. Additionally, we often say that He is the Word of God. We hear that kind of... Uh, that word, wording in John, that in the beginning was the Word, and the Word was God. So we see here that He is the fulfillment of God's words. He, he is the Word of God. He's the embodiment, uh, the living, breathing Word of God. So this, uh, this child who, who was born to Mary and Joseph is more than just that. He is the fulfillment of God's Word, and He is the Word of God, the living and breathing Word of God. Now, why is this significant? Why is that important for us to know? Why is it important that we know that Jesus is the fulfillment of these Old Testament promises? It may not seem all that significant, but if we think about it, so much of what we believe about Jesus hinges on us believing that He is the one the Old Testament says He's going to be. It's, it's so significant that we believe that He is the Messiah of the Old Testament. If we didn't believe that Jesus was the fulfillment of everything that God had promised in the Old Testament, then we would have no reason to believe in Him now. But because we can believe, we can have faith that He is this Messiah. He's the one who's going to sit on the throne forever. He's the one through whom all the world can be blessed. We can put our faith in Him. Because if He wasn't, then He may just be a good person. Being someone who died for a good cause or died unjustly. But He wouldn't be worthy for us to, 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 to praise and honor Him if He wasn't the fulfillment of God's Word. If He wasn't the Messiah from the Old Testament. And if, we, and if we didn't see that, we'd make the same mistake that some of the early Jews made, right? They didn't see Jesus as, the, um, as this Messiah. They didn't trust that He was the fulfillment of the Old Testament. And I want us to ask this for, just for a second. Why did the Jews miss that? Why did some of the most devout people of God miss the Messiah? How did they, how did they not see Jesus as, as the one? And I think a lot of people would agree that it's because of what they expected Jesus to be. 
because of what they expected Jesus to be. And that, that's important. That's significant. What do we expect Jesus to be? Because our, our preconceived expectations can, can kind of change how we view something. And I think that's what happened to the Jews. Is they had these preconceived expectations that the Messiah would be this warrior. That he'd be this one who'd come in and, and, and wipe out the Roman rule. And he would bring you know, Israel back into it, to its greatness. But they didn't have the right view of Jesus. They didn't have the right expectation of Jesus. Just to kind of illustrate this idea of expectation, I want to tell a short little story about when I went to Indonesia. And Jackie and Brian went before me, and I was a little bit nervous about the, the food in Indonesia because I'm not a fan of spicy stuff, and that is largely what they eat is spicy stuff. Um, and so, you know, we were a couple of days in, and I was almost at the point of despair. I was having a good time other than the food. And uh, so I was, you know, wasn't able to eat much. I probably ate more like breakfast bars that I brought from home than I did meals over there. But uh, that, that, that next morning, the, the missionary that we was with, he said, we can go get some breakfast from this stand over here. Now, breakfast does not mean the same thing in Indonesia as it does to us. If you know me, you know that I like breakfast. It's my favorite meal. Um, I like, I was so happy that McDonald's started serving breakfast all day. Um, you know, I like bacon and egg and pancakes, and if you put it all together in a McGriddle, it's even better. I mean, I just I love breakfast, and I like to eat it all day. Um, even if I wake up at noon, the first thing I got to do is go find somewhere to eat some breakfast. But anyways, I say all that to say that when I got to the food stand, I had expected at least something sweet, you know. Something, maybe like a piece of bread that was sweet, or even a boiled egg. But I was not expecting rice and a spicy piece of fried chicken for breakfast at, at 7 or 6 a.m. in the morning. So needless to say, my expectations were let down. I, I was let down big time of what I thought I was going to eat that morning. And that, that wasn't even the worst part. The worst part was that even maybe a couple of days later, we were on a small island. And Jackie and Brian had talked up these banana pancakes so much. They were called banana pancakes. Now, I knew they were going to be made of bananas. But that didn't keep me from envisioning some brown, fluffy pancake with syrup on top. But it was not that. It was smushed bananas, basically, that were just fried together. Uh, all that to say is that, that there's nothing wrong with the banana pancakes. What was wrong was my expectation of them. What I thought they were going, they probably were really good, and I probably would have really loved them had I not been expecting an IHOP pancake, you know, if I really knew what I was getting into. All that to say is that we must believe Jesus as God's Word tells us that He is. We must believe Jesus as God's Word tells us that He is. We can't kind of make up for ourselves this picture of Jesus or what He ought to be or ought to do that is outside of God's Word. And that's so important, especially when we share the Gospel. We can't, we can't share this wrong expectation of Jesus. We can't share Jesus by saying, you know, come to Jesus and you'll get all this, this wealth and prosperity and you'll be, you'll be healthy. That's not the gospel. We cannot bring people to Jesus by pointing them to you know, material blessings. We cannot bring people to Jesus by having all these lights and this, this amazing concert every morning. We bring people to Jesus through the Word of God. That's how they hear the real Jesus. That's how they come to faith in the true Jesus. People come to faith in Jesus when they hear God's Word or when they hear someone share God's Word and they put their faith in Him alone. So we must be careful that we give the right kind of expectation of, of who Jesus is and what He is and what He does. We cannot bring people to Christ with these outside views of Christ that are different from what God word, God's Word says about Christ. Matthew knew just how important it was for us to trust that Jesus really is the fulfillment of God's Word. 
He takes a lot of care to convince his readers of that. So our understanding of this component of Jesus' life is going to affect how we view other important truths about Jesus, about this child who was born here in this passage. So the first component is that he is the fulfillment of God's word. The second component that I want us to consider about Jesus is that he is the presence of God with us. That Jesus is the presence of God with us, or even simpler, as the Bible puts it here, that he is God with us. So look at verse 22 and 23 one more time. Verse 22, he says again, All this took place to fulfill what the Lord had spoken by the prophet. Behold, the virgin shall conceive and bear a son, and they shall call his name Emmanuel, which means God with us. So that, that part that he quotes there, that comes from Isaiah chapter 7, verse 14. But then notice that Matthew adds that little, that little parenthetical phrase there where he says, which means, talking about the word Emmanuel, which means God with us. God with us. Now that may not seem significant, and even you know, since it's in parentheses, you may think, well, that must not be that important, but it is a remarkable statement about this child, about this one who is being born here in Matthew 1. That is a remarkable statement to say that he is God with us. Not only is this child the Son of God, he is God. John 1, like we mentioned a minute ago, says the same thing. Thing. The beginning was the Word, and the Word was God. He was with God. And in Colossians chapter 2, verse 9, there's this really good, really good verse, really good statement that helps us understand, I think, the person of Jesus. It says that in Christ the whole fullness of deity dwells bodily. The whole fullness of deity dwells bodily. So in, in Jesus, who is a bodily man, the full deity of God is there. So He is God, but we cannot forget that He is also man. He is fully man and fully God. And that is absolutely significant to our understanding of salvation, to our doctrine of salvation. So that little, that little verse in Colossians 2.9 I think is, is absolutely helpful for understanding who Jesus is. So I want us to ask then, why is it important that Jesus is God with us? Why is it important that Jesus is fully divine? Uh, that truth, though, to believe that Jesus himself is God, that he is divine, is absolutely essential to our faith. It is absolutely essential to our doctrine of salvation. Without Jesus' divinity, without his being incarnate, we cannot have any forgiveness of sins. If he was less than divine, then how could his death bring forgiveness for sins that were against the holy God? Think about a sin against the holy God has an infinitely, uh, brings about an, an infinite type debt. Think about, just think about that, how holy God is. And the degree in which God is holy, to that same degree, our sin separates us from God. And do you know how holy God is? Infinitely holy, right? Infinitely holy. So you know how separating sin is? It's infinitely separating from God. That debt cannot be removed, cannot be paid for with anything other than a perfectly holy sacrifice. So this child Jesus, if he really is going to be the Messiah, if he really is the one who in verse 21 tells us that Jesus, for he will save his people from their sins, if he is that, if he's going to do that, then he has to be God. He has to be God in the flesh and there is no other way. And that is good news. That is good news because apart from Jesus and on our own, we can't do anything to lift ourselves up towards God. 
Once we have committed sin against this infinitely holy God, we have this infinite debt. What, what can we do to make ourselves right before this holy God? But Jesus, who, who is God, who lived this perfect life, who came in this way, as we see here in Matthew 1, came that we might have a relationship with God. And John 10.10 10 actually tells us, uh, Jesus says, The thief comes only to steal and to kill and destroy. I come that they may have life and have it abundantly. So Jesus comes to give life. And how could he be someone who gives life if he's not God? How could he be uh, able to, to, to say, I can give you life if he's not the life giver? So praise God that in his infinite wisdom and his holiness, he created for us a way to be righteous. I mean, we, can't, we can't get ourselves up, up to heaven. We can't hoist ourselves up to God on our own. So God came down. Through Jesus, God came down to us. God brought himself to us. And how remarkable is that? So Jesus is the fulfillment of God's word, and Jesus is the presence of God's God with us. And it is so important that we believe those things about Jesus. That we can say, as we sang this morning, this, this is Christ the King. Uh, that we can see Him truly as He is, as the Son of God, uh, the, the fulfillment of God's Word. This question of Jesus' identity, it was also important to Jesus. Jesus cared about what His disciples thought uh, of Him. Look at, uh, you don't have to look there, but if you want to, you can look in Matthew chapter 16. I want to read it here, but Matthew 16 verses 13 through 17 says... Now when Jesus came into the district of Caesarea Philippi, he asked his disciples, Who do people say that the Son of Man is? And they said, Some say John the Baptist, others say Elijah, and others Jeremiah, or one of the prophets. And he said to them, But who do you say that I am? Simon Peter replied, You are the Christ, the Son of the living God. And Jesus answered him, Blessed are you, Simon Barjona, for flesh and blood has not revealed this to you, but my Father who is in heaven. So Jesus cared what his disciples thought of him, who he thought he was, because that is important. It's so important that when, they answer, when he answers it rightly, he says, you know, he says, blessed are you. Because you didn't know that on your own, but, but God uh, has revealed this to you. He asked them, you know, he says, who do you, who do you say I am? And they say, oh, they say that you're the prophet, they say you're this, but then he says, who do you say that I am? Who do you say that I am? And how we answer that question is the most important decision that we could ever make in our entire lives. Who do we say that Jesus is? Do you agree with Peter that he is the Christ, the Son of the living God, or was he just a good person who died for a good cause? And don't just kind of think to yourself, yeah, I believe that. I believe that. Ask yourself, does my life reflect that I believe that? Does my life reflect that this is what I believe about Jesus? Do I live like He is the Christ? Do I live like He is the living Son of God? Or do I live as if He was just someone who lived a long time ago? How you answer this question will determine if you think Jesus is worthy of putting your trust in Him, if He is worthy of, putting, uh, of worshiping Him, of giving your entire life to. In a moment we'll have a hymn of invitation. I hope that you'll ask yourselves today, what do I believe about the identity of Jesus? And as we continue in this Advent season, we'll continue to ask questions about Jesus, exploring more about Jesus. But I think this is a good start. Is who do we say Jesus is? Let's pray.
Dear God, thank you for this time that we have had to open your word and to, to ask ourselves, who is Jesus, dear God? I pray that you would continually be revealing that to us, dear God, that you would continually um, show us, dear God, that he is your son, dear God, that he is our, our savior, and that he is the Messiah, and that you would, uh, that we would live like that, dear God, that we would give our lives uh, to you because of that, dear God, that we would uh, put our trust in you. I pray now as we have this time of invitation, God, that you would just open our hearts, dear God. I always have to pray in your gracious and holy name. Amen.